Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 132, not even close to prime. Uh, we are obviously in a remote location. It has, uh, I believe we've got the tech set up to work properly, but we are a little bit hobbled by some of the constraints of this location. Anyway, please bear with us. We are excited to be podcasting from here. Uh, slight delay for those of you who are watching live, but um, I think it's all good to go. I think it's all good to go. Any snoring that you hear is not coming from your own living room, I hope, but it is coming from our lovely Labrador, who is just off screen here. Uh, and uh, and indeed, yes, here you go. I don't think we can guarantee them that any snoring they hear is not in their own living room, because there could be somebody snoring there as well. Okay, <laughs> there's, you see, the, there the is. dog is for real. Yeah. Um, so today, we're going to talk a bit about Roe being overturned. Uh, as as we had good reason to think it was going to be, and we talked about extensively in an earlier episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Twitter-sanctioned violence and a bit about the CDC and VAERS. That's a lot of initials. That's the Centers for Disease Control. And, or is it the Center? No, it's the Centers for Disease Control and, of course, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Uh, so And the connections between all of those things, which interestingly this week, they all do link up. Indeed, as is so often the case. So we will, despite being from an unusual place because we're doing it this normal time, we will do a Q&A right afterwards. You can ask questions at darkhorseemissions.com. We encourage you to seek out A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which is now available not just in English, which is the language we wrote it in, but also in Spanish and in French. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find the live chat on Odyssey. You can find our new Le Tour de France, it's like bike racing on steroids, shirt at our store, uh, store.darkhorsepodcast.org. Um, but if you'd rather wait a week or two, we're going to have a brand new store uh, with uh, more consistent quality and uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit less censorship. So uh, we're excited about that. A lot less censorship. Yeah, actually, a lot like. Uh, Infinitely less? <laughs> infinitely little. How's that? <laughs> I'm not infinitely little. Um, yep, we've got, uh, I, I always point you to Natural Selections, which is where I do my sub stack. I was talking last week about discussion of sex versus ancestry, understanding uh, our ancestry uh, from an individual perspective versus a population perspective, the kind of thinking that one has to begin to get uh, gain facility with in order to think evolutionarily. And uh, finally, by way of introductions and logistics, we are supported by our audience. We appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing both our full episodes on YouTube or Odyssey or Spotify or clips at Dark Horse Podcast Clips at both YouTube and Odyssey. And just a reminder that last summer, of course, YouTube demonetized us, and they have not remonetized us, uh, although there were glimmers of hope, possibly. As such, we do, as always, also appreciate your financial support if you can afford it. You can, for instance, join one of our Patreons. Uh, very tomorrow, very tomorrow, so very <laughs> tomorrow, is our monthly private Q&A, which we'll be doing at 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific time, from the same location where we're coming to you at from now. Uh, at from at from at, yes wow. it's okay. very colloquial around here <laughs> i guess it is uh the questions have already been asked for that but it's a it's a, a small enough group that we're able to engage with the chat and answer questions sometimes uh that come up there so it's a lot of fun you can find access to that at my patreon next next weekend brett will be doing conversations associated with his patreon and um 
And you can also access our wonderful Discord community at, at either of them. You can engage in honest conversations about difficult topics, join a book club, unwind with virtual happy hours, and even karaoke. This is, this is from people on the Discord who tell me this. Young or old, left or right, there's a spot for you around the campfire. One more note I forgot to make at the top of the hour. We are not going to be here next Saturday. We're doing a, a Wednesday episode, Saturday after Wednesday after next Saturday. So uh, we're going to have a slightly wonky schedule here again uh, shortly. Uh, but we are here now, uh, and like I said, we'll be doing a Q&A. And, of course, the other primary financial um, source of support for us is our sponsors, to whom we are, as always, grateful. We have two brand-new-to-us sponsors this week and one almost brand-new. And because we're working um, without excess screens, without any nuts that I can see, uh, I'm going to be doing the reads this week, um, but I encourage you, Brett, to jump in and, and ad-lib as you see fit. All right. I will be reading along in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mind reading. Well, uh, I guess you would call it that. <laughs> yes, I would. Confusing as that might be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our first sponsor this week is brand new to us, and we are excited to be partnering with them. It is Thesis. Thesis makes nootropics. Nootropics. You know, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Nootropics. Isn't it nootropics? Oh, maybe I was pronouncing I, I would thought the no part was, was wrong. Like, nootropics no is right if you uh, stay in the temperate zone, I think. Mm, yeah. No, no troop. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Thesis makes... Nootropics. <laughs> I don't think it's new. That's the point. <laughs> It'll make any tropics. Um. Okay. Thesis is awesome, actually. We're really excited to have them as a sponsor. Uh, they make something that is spelled N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C-S. I think it's pronounced. Together, I think that we think it is pronounced nootropics. Nootropics are nutrients found in nature or in the human body that have been demonstrated to enhance mental performance in areas such as motivation, creativity, mood, memory, focus, and cognitive processing. They work best when combined with exercise, proper nutrition, and mindfulness activities such as, for instance, meditation, although I feel like downhill skiing would work as well. You're probably already using a nootropic as one of the most commonly consumed is caffeine, but caffeine is far from the most exciting. Effective nootropics allow people to optimize their focus, energy, and mood based on the demands of the day. In some cases, nootropics can replace the pharmaceuticals that are usually used to tackle a, pro a problem like ADHD. Thesis, our sponsor for this week, our first sponsor is unusual in the nootropic market and taking a very personalized approach. They do not assume that what works for your brother will work for you, for instance, or that what worked for you when you were under deadline for a dreadful project is going to work when you are seeking creativity for a project you've been dreaming about for years. Those are different mental states or different people, depending, and uh, you, you may be enhanced to be your best self with different nootropics under those conditions. Just as some people become alert after a cup of coffee and others can fall right asleep, so too do all nootropics have different effects on different people. With the first iteration of Thesis products, which is not the ones they're on now, customers were treated like subjects in a clinical trial with their full consent. Blinded customers took a series of different nootropics blends over the course of a month and reported how they felt. Analysis of that feedback found that, not surprisingly, different people respond differently to different blends. Now, after two years, 2,500 customers, and millions of data points, Thesis is confident that they have created a recommendation algorithm to predict which blends of nootropics will work best for any given customer. The process is simple. Go to their website, take a short quiz, and they'll send a starter kit with four different blend recommendations to try over the course of a month. I've tried two of them now and been intrigued by both. 
The creativity blend that I'm taking now seems to smooth things over, add a little clarity, make inspiration come a bit easier. But of course, the point here is that results may vary, right? With fully personalizable blends, there is likely to be a thesis that is right for you. To get your own customized thesis starter kit, go online to takethesis.com slash darkhorse. That's T-A-K-E-T-H-E-S-I-S dot com slash darkhorse. Take the quiz and use code darkhorse at checkout for 10% off your first box. Yeah, I think it's very cool that they uh, basically use a scientific method for discovering which ones might be relevant to you, not assuming that your mother's or your brother's druthers will um, dictate your own. So yeah, it, it is it is a pretty uh, cool approach. Yeah, indeed. All right, our second sponsor this week is Bubs Naturals. Bubs Naturals sells three products that are becoming ever more popular in fitness and outdoor exploration circles. Collagen protein, MCT oil, and apple cider vinegar gummies. There are a lot of companies already selling these products, but Bubs is different. Here's how. First, the products themselves are of the highest quality, carefully and sustainably sourced, on which more in a minute. And Bubs is a company with conscience. Bubs is named for former Navy SEAL Glenn Bub Doherty, who was great friends with people from all walks of life, including one of the founders of Bubs Naturals. His friends included ski bums, outdoor enthusiasts, hippies, SEALs, and everyone in between. Glenn Bub Doherty stood for self-improvement and was always helping others. So for 364 days a year, 10% of all profits go to charities in Glenn's honor, including the Glenn Doherty Foundation, which is dedicated to supporting special operators and their families as they transition into civilian life through scholarships and other professional training. On Veterans Day, 100% of proceeds go to Bub's charity. Bub's Naturals encapsulates Bub's enthusiasm for life, self-improvement, and helping others with this. Feel great, do good. Try, for instance, Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein, which is truly unflavored, unlike many collagen proteins on the market, and soluble, unlike some, some on the market. It's just got one ingredient, which is critical for joint and gut health and muscle recovery, and you can add anything. A glass of water, a smoothie, a cup of coffee. And Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein is sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil, very far from the Amazon. If you are looking for a soluble, flavorless protein to help with, for instance, post-workout recovery, this could be just the product for you. With Bub's products, aim for a motto, another motto that Bub's lives by, die young as late as possible. Go to bubsnaturals.com and use code DARKHORSE at checkout for 20% off your order. That is actually the perfect way to describe the ideal senescence profile. Right? Yep. Die young as late as possible. As late as possible. It's not naive. It doesn't imagine... Uh, that you're going to live forever. That you're going to live forever, or that you will have endless, endless, endless youth, but die young as late as possible. All right. Our final sponsor this week is Ferrolife, which makes skincare products from animal fats, primarily lard from pigs. Ferrolife makes a few remarkable skin products, which will probably be unlike any you have tried before unless you make your own. Using face food for your face and skin food for the rest of your body. Just a tiny bit of face food on my face evens out the texture and feeling of it and just feels good. Similarly, a little bit of skin food on cracked fingers after too much gardening or dry legs or elbows after a lot of dirty work or time in the wind and sun feels luxurious and again makes your skin uh, feel smooth and healthy. A little goes a long way. It's made in small batches here in the United States with no added chemicals or preservatives and the fat is 100% sourced from farms that use regenerative and pasture-based animal husbandry which Pharaoh is calling smart lard technology. If you've got sensitive skin or a baby with a diaper rash or a small child with eczema, or have a very active lifestyle that includes crafting or wood or metal working or generally being outside a lot, you should definitely try Pharaoh Life's skin food. 
Fairlife is a young company, the first lard-based skincare company, and is eager to promote more products utilizing smart lard technology. In the works include soap, deodorant, and lip balm. After all, the lard works in mysterious ways. Charles Mayfield, the founder of Pharaoh Skincare, calls himself a, quote, healthy living, regenerative farming evangel uh, nope. <clears throat> evangelist. <clears throat> he calls himself, I repeat, a healthy living, regenerative farming evangelist. Here at Dark Earth, we love what Pharaoh is doing, and we want to see them grow and provide more consumers access to healthier skincare options. Apply a little face food or skin food or both daily to restore skin health, elasticity, moisture, and promote homeostasis. Dark Horse listeners can save 20% off their first purchase by going to pharaoh.life slash darkhorse or applying the code darkhorse at checkout. Get additional 15% savings by signing up for a subscription to receive Pharaoh skin food on a monthly, bi-monthly, or quarterly basis. That's pharaoh, F-A-R-R-O-W, dot life slash darkhorse. All right. All right. Um... Were we planning to start with Roe? I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the right place to start. So let us just first say we are at the 25th of June, 2022, and the Supreme Court has uh, just overturned Roe, as was expected based on the leak from the Supreme Court um, some weeks back. Which we talked about in an episode dedicated almost entirely to the leak, what it would mean, what a Abortion meant for people, um, episode 125 on May 4th, which was the week that the leak came out in an episode that we titled Alito Goes a Long Way. Alito Goes a Long Way, right. You can check that one out. So now it has finally come to pass. And I think there are a number of things that uh, I do not hear being discussed elsewhere, at least not uh, as I think makes sense that we should, we should talk about. Mm -hmm. One has to do with the fact that the... Um, the Roe decision has played a role in American politics that uh, will now change radically. And we don't really know how exactly. But I will say, as someone who has been very interested in the hazard posed to us by the duopoly and the need for us to escape that stranglehold on our politics, that every time somebody comes up with a mechanism whereby we might escape the hegemony of the duopoly, we are always threatened with, you can't do that because if you do attempt to do anything other than elect one of the, uh, the main party candidates, what you will do is you will elect the worst of these candidates and you will jeopardize Roe. Right? And now there's a version of this on the right as well, but the basic point is because of the importance of Roe to both sides, there is always this sort of Damocles that hangs over us where we are not allowed to contemplate any political future other than red and blue, which is odd because when people are studied, it turns out that the vast majority of Americans are more or less in agreement on this issue. We talked about this a little bit in our in our prior episode. A fair bit. I showed I showed the responses, the results of some surveys that have been done that show the vast majority of Americans are in favor of abortion, but not uh, under all circumstances up until the moment of birth. Yes, Americans abortion with some restrictions, and we do vary uh, in terms of what those restrictions might be. Uh, but the vast majority of us are not extremists on one side or the other. Yes, more or less. Uh, there is a small group that believes abortion should never, ever be 
legal and people grow more uneasy with it the later in pregnancy it happens. And um, that agreement among most of us is actually a pretty good match for what was in the Roe decision. So there's a lot of people who are uneasy with the basis of the Roe decision, but effectively um, the Roe decision shows exactly this pattern where it did not allow abortion at any moment in pregnancy. In fact, um, it was limited by trimester. Um, so we had this decision, but it was now overturned on the basis of um, the underlying legal questions, which we won't get into here. But there is some um, there is some question now as to what happens to us politically now that we have had the appointment of Supreme Court justices who were willing to overturn Roe. The decision has now been overturned, which kicks this back to the states. The states have now uh, drawn battle lines where some states are ratcheting up uh, their uh, laws against abortion, in some cases very extreme uh, restrictions. And uh, other people are making provisions to provide access to abortions to people who live in states that are becoming more restrictive. So now that that is happening at the state level, what does this do to, for example, our presidential politics? Are we now at liberty to talk about uh, alternatives to the major party candidates? Or is this now going to become a new set of battle lines where the point is we must effectively restore Roe, presumably with a new decision? My sense growing up in the 70s, 80s, but I guess my, my more adult sense of sort of late 80s and 90s, was that um, hanging out mostly with Democrats, as I did, uh, that we, we understood uh, that Republicans were sort of a, a, a group of different special interests that didn't naturally have a coalescing shared set of values. That there were the people who were there for um, for anti-choice. There are people there for two A and and others presumably, but those are the two big ones. And by contrast, it was always implied and sometimes explicit. Oh well, the Democrats have sort of a you know a, a, a platform that makes coherent sense. And I don't know that to be true. That's not the point of what I'm saying right now. The point of what I'm saying right now is somehow. Even if that was true back then, it seems increasingly, as is really hard to ignore, at least in the last five or ten years, that is certainly descriptive of the Democrats as well. For a while, it was uh, gay marriage that was the one thing that Democrats were told you absolutely can't uh, can't leave you know leave the fold for. But throughout everything, it's been abortion. This has been the issue about which we are not allowed. Um, to look at any of the other planks in the platform and say, yeah, but actually I disagree with so many of the other changes you're making over here. What about everything else? So this is a question. and I think actually the dynamics of the two parties changed radically during the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. So there was a time prior to the Clinton administration when for all of its faults, the Democratic Party was effectively the party of working people. And it represented their interests against, for example, corporate interests, which were naturally at odds. 
The Clinton administration innovated this change where effectively they became a second corporate party. They abandoned the issues that unite working class people. And in some ways, as a mirror of the the Republican Party that already existed, what they did is they adopted symbolic issues in order to drive people to the polls to to, to vote for them, right? Yeah. And, you know, my... It does seem like it changed in the 90s during the Clinton years. Yeah. It, it changed in the 90s, and, you know, my claim, uh, which some will take as cynical, is that effectively you have two parties that are involved in influence peddling, two parties that have a business model, and their business model involves winning enough votes to have power and then monetizing that power by selling it to special interests, mm -hmm. right? And the fact is working people are not a special interest in the same sense that let's say the fossil fuel industry is a special interest. Mm -hmm. um, so now that we have two of these parties, these issues that are used to divide us are also used to motivate us. And the key thing to understand is that the parties do not inherently need large numbers of people. Right? What they need to do is win. You can win with a very small fraction of the electorate. Most of the electorate can be tuned out and you can uh, still win the same amount of power and then you can monetize it in the same way. So in some sense, the parties don't care that they're turning us off. What they care about is <coughs> winning enough power to, uh, to distribute to their actual constituents who are these, uh, these moneyed interests. But nonetheless, we are this week now facing a new landscape that I don't think any of us understand well yet. We've lived under the sword of Damocles for so long that it isn't clear whether we will just see, you know, a change in the narrative and we will see the same motivation or whether this will remove some of the motivation from one side or the other, right? Um, I would argue that in some sense that this likely, uh, you know, is uh, harmful to, well, I see, you know, it's on both sides. It's harmful to um, the Republicans, the motivation to get people to the polls to over, overturn this, uh, this decision, which is viewed as, um, as essentially evil on, on the one side. Um, that uh, is eliminated because now they've crossed the finish line uh, on that goal. Um, but it, it can be used uh, to suggest that it's even more important uh, that we get no more appointees that look like the last... Boy, what is it? Four, I guess. I may have that number wrong. To the Supreme Court, right? And there, you know, the, there was, a, I think, absurd talk about packing the court prior to the most recent election. It may be that this kickstarts uh, that discussion. Um, but there was another aspect I wanted to raise. There, there's something that haunts the discussion of Roe. And I almost never hear it discussed, especially on the left. And when it is discussed on the right, it is discussed in terms that make it. Uh, inaccessible. And that has to do with the question of what is upstream of the right or lack thereof to an abortion. And that is the question of how we are all to behave sexually, right? Within this debate is the question about where is it that one's control over whether or not to produce a child is correctly exercised. And the right tends to lean in the direction effectively of uh, a more restrictive sexual environment is the place to control whether you get pregnant. And in fact, in our last discussion, we talked about the fact that their position was incoherent if they are not also supportive of the right to an abortion in the case of rape or incest. Right? Because if you have that right, then the point is there is a control that can be exerted 
um, at the level of deciding who sleeps with whom. Um, but if we don't allow people to access this right, even when they've been raped, then obviously that that's uh, itself inconsistent. But so the the question is, we've got two sides of this debate. The left, the Democrats, effectively portray the question of sex and who has sex with whom as entirely an individual decision. And certainly many of us have some sympathy with that position. On the other hand, is it really just a personal decision? In other words, it has some implication for, for example, the spreading of sexually transmitted diseases. It has some implication for the uh, coherence of our societal environment over the presence of uh, two parents in a household. And so really, I think there's a hidden debate here, which is what what do we collectively believe about um, sexual liberty? What is the right position? And the left seems to favor uh, a uh, free-for-all. And the right seems to favor a reactionary position, one that in some sense is uh, maybe appropriate to a pre-birth control environment. And nowhere do I see a... um, a constituency that is balancing these two things and recognizing that a free-for-all actually has all kinds of negative uh, implications, uh, whereas a reactionary environment makes no sense uh, with birth control freely available. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that I want to soliloquy back at you. I think maybe this would be better done if we can exchange things a, a bit a bit more uh, dynamically. But um, two things that I remember right off the bat in terms of how I want to respond are uh, your framing, which I think is accurate, although I think many people on both sides would disagree with it, uh, reveals that in on this issue, the people on the, the left, as it were, the people who are um, who are pro-choice, um, at least the extremist pro-choice people, are really arguing for a highly individualist um, set of policies, a set of policies which is driven by individual needs, and the people on the right, the people who are anti-choice, um, are in fact arguing for a collectivist position, which of course is the exact opposite of what we usually think of when we think of, of left versus right. You know, left tends to be the collectivist position, and right tends to be the individualist position, and what we have here is is the inverse. So that's that's intriguing on its own. And then I think there's a lot more to be explored with regard to what I think was your final point here around the, you know, so the, the reactionary move on the right to the, the social impact of, of obliterating the right to abortion, which of course the overturning of Riley Wade has not obliterated the right to abortion, but has obliterated the federally um, protected. protected, thank you, um, right to abortion, no matter where you are in the United States. Um, that is generally framed by people on the right in terms and with a clear ethos that is, frankly, not just reactionary, but regressive, uh, traditionalist, sexist, misogynistic. And uh, that in part is, you know, the, the fact that that is true is part of why, and certainly not all of why, but part of why many women reject the argument out of hand because they see in it that there is also wrapped up in it uh, a, a desire to maintain a sort of like genesis-driven 
um, understanding of what women are as if we are, you know, coming from, you know, a, a thrown out piece of, of the original man, which in the 21st century, in most of the 20th century, most people were coming to understand that this is not in fact the case. And both birth control and safe and legal abortion do provide an, a freeing and an empowerment such that uh, women are able to have more agency with regard to what we choose to do with our lives. But, but we never hear on the left, those people, we almost never, I, I feel like I've heard little glimmers of this, but we almost never hear uh, the, other, the other question, which is what effects do, does this have on society, which is the question that you are raising here. And in part, sorry, before, before you respond to that, in part, because it's been, I'm coming up with all the wrong words, it has been criminalized, it's been, it's been sort of demonized, the very conversation has been demonized because the only people who've been having it are on the right, have a very hard, um, hardcore stance against abortion under any circumstances. And so if you ever even raise the question of, let's just talk about what the effect of uh, of abortion is going to be on society, you get labeled as right wing, even if you very much are not. Yeah, um, there is no room in the conversation, and maybe maybe this is obvious, but it's like there is a telltale sign of a conversation that has been so embedded in a political environment that mm-hmm. um, it's dysfunctional by its very nature. And that telltale sign is that any step in the direction of nuance is punished, right? Right. And, you know, I I must say, and, you know, you have said this on your substack, Caitlin Flanagan has said something like this, was it in the Atlantic? But there is something almost frightening about the... um, the inability to escape a dynamic where you are either effectively enthusiastic about abortion or you can't even contemplate it for, you know, a a barely implanted um, zygote uh, that is the product of rape. And the problem is this strands all of us, or almost all of us, yeah. right? In a, in a conversation that we can't even have, right? Do I want government as a manifestation of our collective will telling you, you know, uh, who you're allowed to sleep with? Of course not. On the other hand, um, I think anybody would have to look at the sexual environment that we have and say, you know, it's a fairly decent test of what happens when you just basically suspend all the rules. And the answer is, it's not good for people. It doesn't make them sexually satisfied, among other things. It's a complete failure in that regard. Um, What's more, it results in us uh, sexualizing very young girls, which doesn't give them the opportunity to move into the world and be serious about other things because it does instantiate this, you know, your, your sexual value is your value as the, the primary uh, driving force. So it's a very unhealthy environment and all of the tools that you might use to fix it are forbidden because they're taken to be a political sin in an environment where abortion is understood as the singular issue in which you have to have um, an extreme position. Yeah. Um, do you have that picture I sent you, Zach? Yeah. 
This is going to seem like a non sequitur. <laughs> no, it seems like a lemur. <laughs> this is a lemur. For those for those listening, not watching, this is uh, an individual, Varicia variegata, ruffed lemur. Uh, individuals of this species, I don't think it was this subspecies, but of this species lived on the island Nozimangabi, where uh, just off the coast of Madagascar, where I did my dissertation research. And there, this was in the late 90s, uh, I was told by a local man, a naturalist, that a particular plant, whose identity I've long since forgotten, was eaten by Varicia variegata, was eaten by individual females of this species of lemur as an abortifacient. Now, I don't know if this is true. I've never seen, I don't see it in the literature. Uh, he assured me and I asked another naturalist and he said, yeah, I've heard that too, but I have no idea if that's one or two data points. I don't know from, from whence it originally comes. Um, but the idea that apropos nothing, we weren't talking, you know, I wasn't talking in my very poor French and his pretty middling French, neither of us in our first languages while walking around the rainforest in Madagascar about reproductive rights. You know, we just, we ran into a troop of these guys and he mentioned that there was this, this plant that the females ate as a way to terminate their pregnancies when they needed to. Um, whether or not that particular thing is true, it got me thinking then and has me thinking again now about uh, the fact that it shouldn't surprise us if this um, and other smart animals find ways to solve their own problems. And there are a lot of reasons that a woman or a roughed lemur might feel the need to terminate a pregnancy. This issue has never simply been as simple as it's a life, which is what we are told, which is what, you know, what the, the sort of the tagline for the position of the extremist on the right is it's a life. For some people, that is the issue, beginning, middle, end. That's all you have to say. That's all there is to consider. But for most of us, it's, it's not, there's just more to it. And the fact of there being um, two organisms involved, a pregnant female, in this case of a lemur, or a, a, preg a pregnant adult human female, in the case of uh, women, uh, doesn't, you know, that and, and a fetus does not acknowledge, I mean, does not, is not responsive. The argument that it's a life is not responsive to actually what about the other life you're talking about here. And again, I don't know if actually other organisms are using plants as abortifacients. It wouldn't surprise me. I've been told it's true. I can't find evidence in the literature, but of course the organisms aren't going out and putting stuff into the scientific literature, are they? Uh, so I, I guess I wanted to add this and a couple of other little pieces in here about how really complex and messy categories are, how simple some of them are, things like female, very simple. Uh, but at the point of whether or not women should have a right to terminate a pregnancy that if they carried it through to term uh, would radically alter everything that they could do with their own lives and would likely mean a much poorer quality of life for that child. Uh, to respond to that with, it's a life, we can't have this conversation, has always felt like it is missing the point. Missing the point. And, you know, I think your allusion to the recent um, debate over defining what a woman is, for example, is exactly right. This throws you and me for a loop because the answer is, well, this is a biological question, right? It has a, you know, 500 million year history at the very least. And so 
you know, the necessary tools to even have the discussion are not limited to this moment in history in this particular species. They are embedded in a much bigger story that has a lot of logical rungs on the ladder. And this one is the same way, right? The fact is, even birth is a bit arbitrary, right? A human baby is not independent, even if we say it's viable because it can survive at this moment. Survive means with the intense care of adults, right? And very few people, right, a vanishingly tiny number, would be comfortable in a society that has as much abundance as we have, with people terminating their already born children because their economic circumstances have changed. So the point is we already draw a line in which the point is we say, actually, you have to care for this individual beyond this point, or you have to, you know, at least make sure that they are cared for, right? So, so I mean, the, the, and this is a point that we made in episode 125 as well, and that I make in the abortion essay that I wrote for Ariel a few years back. Um, but there, you know, there are two lines which can be understood as arbitrary as the lines on which policy is made, but they're not arbitrary in one way, right? And those two lines, which are conception and birth, are both real and also for apparently the vast majority of Americans, at least, who are the people who, whose survey answers we have access to, uh, for the vast majority of us, we don't see either of those lines as the lines that should be ar the arbiter of, of what should be possible. Right? Conception is a real moment, and birth is a real moment. And most Americans anyway, and I posit probably an even greater majority of, of other human beings, beings worldwide, don't view either conception or birth as the line before or after which abortion should be um, accepted. Right. The lines are not arbitrary in the sense that we can define a relatively precise moment. They are arbitrary with respect, uh, well, at least birth is arbitrary with respect to development. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, all of the, with the exception of people who truly believe that each uh, offspring is preordained by an intentional God, right? People who believe that uh, are at least logically consistent to treat uh, a zygote similarly to the way they treat a baby, because the point is the intent uh, is a baby in somebody's mind. But for those of us who don't believe that these are all individually planned and preordained, the point is both of these arguments fall apart as you push them to the extremes, which means that we really are naturally uh, in this middle ground, which, you know, it's not where you want to be, because it does involve drawing an arbitrary boundary. Um, but you know, this is more or less, without the political dynamic, this is where people end up, right? They end up increasingly uneasy the closer you get to birth, and most people would draw a line at birth that they wouldn't uh, contemplate crossing, mm -hmm. um, except in maybe very extreme circumstances. Um, right. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would... I wish we were having the conversation about what our society should look like and, you know, what the rules of interaction um, should be. You know, my, my position is that uh, sex is a very important thing and therefore a society that treats it uh, in a profane way is not a healthy society because it takes something extremely precious and powerful and, um, you know, uh, renders it 
uh, economic or frivolous or, or whatever. You know, it's not mine to say for anyone else. But I guess the point is, I think there, even if you're just a utilitarian, there's a question about whether or not um, a free for all is actually net better from the point of whatever it is that you value from a system that has some kinds of rules or guidance about how you interact and therefore would treat this issue quite differently. Yeah, rules uh, to which are not attached draconian measures such as we find in um, some countries still uh, to this day. Um, But expectations around uh, behavior that individuals of both sexes can um, abide by in a way that feels fulfilling to them, and not just not just the fringe, not not expectations that obviously benefit one sex over the other, um, and and keep one keep one subservient. Uh, but there must there must be a way, and this is wholly consistent with our you know our themes in almost every regard, and the themes in our, in our book as well. You know, we we can't go back. Um, both because we can't go back. We've just, we've, we've gone too far. There have been too many technological and other advances, nor should we want to go back because back wasn't all that good for nearly as many people. Um, so we must go forward, but we must not go forward. We should not want to go forward in many of the ways that we are now being told by the so-called left, the so-called progressives, uh, in which you throw over reality in favor of what, giving everyone a cookie and a star. You know, it's, it's, it's infantilizing, it's reality denying, and it makes no sense. And the two options are not infantilizing reality de- denying nonsense or regressive misogynistic, um, you know, lifestyles. And I'm, I'm losing the last word there, but you know, those, those can't be the two options. That's, that's not what we're actually arguing about. And just to go, I guess maybe full circle, those are the two options that we would, that the two major parties at this point, and it really did feel, at least to me, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like this was mostly coming from the Republicans. But at this point, for sure, both of the parties are interested in having us believe that those are the two options. Pick your hell, really. And, you know, each side will tell their version of what looks like hell to the vast majority of us in the middle as a sort of a paradise, as a utopia. But the fact is um, that that most versions of the traditionalist misogynistic lifestyles would be hell for most people and most versions of the reality denying infantilizing nonsense um, that the modern left is encouraging would be hell for most people and for the rest of us we we are fighting for an ability to create a world that actually makes some sense and that recognizes reality and that maximizes the chance that the, that everyone can experience an ability to to flourish and um, maybe, maybe this is a strange segue, and you didn't know I wanted to say this today, but I did want to um, tell a brief anecdote from, from my own family, because in the wake of both me publishing on, uh, on abortion in Aereo, I think in 2019 it was, so I think three years ago, and in the wake of our talking about this issue in early May, about two months ago, uh, we got a lot of very good a lot of very good responses, but I also got uh, some pushback from what I view as extremists on on one side. Um, I got killed. A, I got got called a baby killer, right? And uh, I'm you know I'm I'm very clear in the Aereo piece um, that while I have never had to make the choice, I was never in a position. I was some combination 
of um, skillful and lucky enough never to have been in a position to have made a choice, but um, I, am, I am good friends with, with people who have. And uh, what I haven't said publicly, and I have asked him if I may, may talk about this, and he has said yes, is that my beloved younger brother is adopted. And when we, when we talk to each other, we don't refer to him as my adopted brother, and I don't usually introduce him you know, in, in, in absentia to people as my adopted brother, although sometimes it's relevant. Uh, but he's my brother. He was adopted. Um, he, was, he was born to a teenage mother somewhere in the middle of the country uh, who loved their daughter and who loved their daughter sufficiently and had means sufficient um, and had values consistent with um, having her take the baby to term, but then immediately give that child up for adoption. Uh, she had been in a relationship with a, a dude um, some years older than her, you know, classic story, right? Like very good girl in a good family who got impregnated by a guy who had no business anywhere near her. And the family um, didn't believe in abortion and she carried to term. And my parents adopted my brother uh, within a day or two of his birth and brought him home and he was my brother from, from then on. And I have, I have always, and my brother has always, been grateful uh, that that family uh, made the decision that they did and that, they, and that, that I have a brother, right? And that, that he has the family that he has. He, like me, is pro-choice and he always has been. And this is not an inconsistency. This doesn't say anything about him wishing that he didn't exist, him wishing that he himself um, had been aborted, which would have been an easier choice at some level for that young 15 or 16 year old back in the back in the early 70s, just you know, slightly after Roe was even even um, made it possible. Um, we can be grateful for that particular choice that was made, and also grateful that it was a choice. Grateful for the human being that exists and is my brother, and is my children's uncle, and. Also grateful that that girl, as have generations of girls since then, had the option to have safe and legal abortions should they so choose. This is not an inconsistency. And I guess, I guess that's it. At this point, I will just keep repeating the same thing. But it's not... I think people want to trot out examples like Beethoven would have been aborted. Right. If, right. Right. But you, you can't do this. We, we have to have an adult conversation, and the adult conversation does not involve us uh, breaking down into a puddle of sorrow for all of the sperm that might have met an egg that would have been someone great that would have changed the world. Right. That's not how it works, yeah. right? The fact is people come into being, circumstances affect them, they become what they are, and looking back at an individual life and saying, well, what if a different choice had been made, is it's sleight of hand, right? I, I, think, I think it is. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I could defend that, though. I, I, think you're right. I think you're right. It feels like sleight of hand. It feels like there's no obligation to say any of this, which is part of why I haven't said it before. No, it's, sleight, it's sleight of hand because the number of people who might have been but for all sorts of things, right, including just sperm barely having missed an egg or, you right. know, having been a fraction of a second later to an egg than some other sperm. Or mm -hmm. 
the point is, do you want to do all those calculations about what might have been? You know, your, your brain will hang up at the sheer complexity of the calculation. It, it does not result in a coherent understanding of an alternative world. Or do you want to be selective and say, oh, well, would you have that person not exist? Right. It just it's one or the other. Either you want to understand everything that might have been, yeah. in which case you're going to be uh, reduced to ignoring this by virtue of the fact that what you take to be important will be lost in a sea of other things that might be equally important or more so. Yeah. Right. Or you want to say those who are here are a different matter than the thing that resulted in them being here. Right. You know, do you want, you know, if somebody missed the bus and didn't get to a date that would have resulted in an important person having been born who we will never even know of because the date didn't occur, right? Like, that's not a tragedy, right? It may, in fact, be a major loss to humanity that a person didn't come into being as a result of a missed bus, but there's no way to, there's no way to calculate it honorably, right? Yeah. Well, and I think uh, th this is actually another example of the rise of the import of calculation and quantitative analysis of human experience uh, over actually recognizing how diverse and complex we are, right? Like, okay, you know, can you calculate that? Uh, well, then let's, and let's ignore all of the things that we can't calculate. Let's ignore the, the, the qualifiable and focus only on the quantifiable. And yeah, probably also put our biases in there because once we, you know, fill the quantifiable with enough black boxes, it looks it becomes hard for anyone else to come in and figure out what's been done. And once there are, once there is a thing to be counted, it's easier to point to that and say, that thing is precious than to say, oh, there was never a thing. Therefore, of course, there was no preciousness, preciousness there to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's another version of owning the downsides of your own arguments, right? Mm -hmm. If we're going to look at somebody who does exist and say they might not have, the point is that same calculation results in all sorts of people who didn't exist, but for a thousand, a thousand things. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it's cheating at one level mm -hmm. uh, to drag that in. I would also say this is a question about which kinds of calculations you want to do, yeah. right? A, a simple calculation about, you know, you do or you don't have this right and it's absolute or it isn't is absurd. The fact is trying to maximize anything is devastating in any complex system. And so trying to maximize or minimize this right is a problem. And there's a reason that other parts of the world don't typically do that. There are mm -hmm. some that do, but, you know, Europe, for example, has, you know, they've found a balance point in mm -hmm. general. Um, and, and it's widely variable. I mean, you know, the different nation states in Europe have different numbers, uh, different numbers of weeks, usually, um, before and after which abortion is legal. Um, after which sometimes it might be legal in the case of saving the mother's life, for instance. Um, but you know, in some some of some of the countries uh, that we in America who are pro-choice have historically liked to trot out as evidence of uh, being you know have full having full reproductive rights actually have fairly restrictive numbers. You know, some of these are uh, at the end of the first trimester or earlier, uh, which is well before a lot of genetic testing can happen, and you know it feels. It, it, that would that would be a restrictive step back uh, for the majority of Americans who live in states where the state law is still protecting abortion at the at, at more or less the same level as it did a few days ago. Yeah. Um, and I do think it belongs somewhere in this conversation. There is certainly talk in states that are eager to uh, obliterate this right. There is talk about preventing people from example, for example, uh, crossing 
uh, a state boundary to seek an abortion, which uh, I would be shocked if such provisions stood up to a challenge in the court, because of course you have a constitutional right to move between states. And so in any case, I do think we are headed towards a world in which there will be differential access in different states, yep. which uh, is one reason that a federal policy might uh, find itself on more solid legal ground, right? Equal protection might involve uh, people in all states having equal rights to procedures like this. I don't know, but that is mm -hmm. at least discussed as one possible basis for replacement for for Roe. But where we are headed, short of something like a federal provision that did protect this as a matter of equal protection under the law, um, we are headed for a world in which it is vastly more inconvenient in some for people living in some states than others, um, which you know does seem unfair. To it me, does seem but, unfair, um, um, and it is also there's also been wildly unequal access for a while now, even with Roe standing. That's true. Uh, uh, you know that, that doesn't that ground. doesn't make it okay. That right. does not make it okay, um, but that. Yeah, yeah was, I mean, we, we will see what happens next. Obviously, uh, it's not it's not heartening. It felt it felt like a very sad day. It also was uh, we all knew it was coming, and uh, and as we said in episode one twenty five, uh, there are legal scholars on both sides of this issue who really feel very strongly, for instance, uh, that women ought to have the right to choose, who feel that Roe is bad law. Yeah. Well, it'll be very interesting uh, to see where we go. I do hope that one thing that comes out of it is that we have a more nuanced conversation about, you know, what what sex ought to be with respect mm -hmm. to how we understand each other. And I hope that we move in the direction of taking it m much more seriously and, and honoring it rather than trivializing it. Uh, I guess I would also, um, this is more at home, a while back in the conversation, but I also think that in that discussion, we really increasingly need to draw a distinction between um, collaborative sex and antagonistic sex and realize that what we are doing, that the free-for-all has actually moved us in the direction of a mode of sex where there's no intent, you know, men have no intent to invest at all in the people with whom they are having sex, that that cannot help but echo what in the past would have been an antagonistic version of sex. The idea of impregnating somebody and walking away is not a kind thing, right? It's not something a decent person should want to do. And the fact that we are now pretending that this is a commonplace uh, behavior and that we should all want this, men and women should uh, want to be having sex and not thinking about commitment, it, you know, a, it's not clear that that makes anybody happier or more satisfied. And B, it's not clear that we should want a society in which that's the way people behave. Well, it is, as we have said elsewhere, including in our book at some length, um, it is uh, upholding men at their worst as the ideal to which we should all aspire. Yeah. As if men at their worst should be the ideal to which any of us should aspire. <laughs> you know, women at their worst, sim similarly, it's just... It, it, this happens to be a men at their worst thing, yep. uh, and and women and you know good men or men who would only very occasionally consider going to their worst mode are all like, okay, well it's um, it's a free for all, so I guess let's do this, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't leave people 
um, joyous, satisfied sexually or otherwise, um, or in good shape with regard to the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about um, bacteria. Really? I'm not sure that it really fits in here anymore. <laughs> um, let me just let me just very very briefly. I can't. I can't. I, I had it all sort of worked in, and I think we kind of kind of flew by wherever I thought it was going to go. But before we before we segue into Twitter sanctioned violence, um, I guess I guess the point here is I guess why I thought it belonged here is life is weird, and um, as biologists well know, uh, but many people outside of biology, including other scientists, often don't recognize the categories often have fuzzy boundaries. And some, you know, some, again, some categories don't. Female and male, not fuzzy. Intersex, fine. That refers to the binary of female versus male. But many categories do have fuzzy boundaries. And evolution often finds a way. And simple rubrics are often too simplistic um, rather than sophisticated. <clears throat> so as it turns out, I can't show my screen here. So I will link in the show notes this uh, article published this week in Science. Uh, the largest bacterium ever found, which is surprisingly complex. It's bigger than Drosophila. It's bigger than the fruit fly that is the, um, the, the model organism that's used in so much genetics research and other development, um, developmental biology research as well. So from the lay summary rather than the actual, like the slightly more theory. Wait, wait, can I, can I raise one issue? Yeah. Okay, as a biologist, hearing that there is a bacterium bigger than a Drosophila, did you say that? Yeah, so, so I'm not going to be able to show it, but actually maybe But he, here's yeah. the problem. So there's got to be some biological answer oh, to you're this. You're going to, it's, it's good. All right, so here, I'm just going to tell the audience what it is that has to be addressed by whatever it is you're about to tell me. The problem is that cells have a limit on their size. Now, bacteria are much smaller than eukaryotic cells, so I guess their limit in size is presumably not governed by this, unless the point is that the transport mechanism for oxygen into the cell is less effective, and therefore the ability of oxygen to make it into the cell is greater. So the question is, how does a very large bacterium get enough oxygen into the interior of its cell, given that its surface area per unit of volume drops the bigger the cell is, how can it possibly exist? So I've sent you uh, a relevant picture, Zach, which is just a screenshot from one of the tables in the paper, uh, which, uh, that's great. That's actually not even the main intriguing thing, I think, about this research. But as you will see, once, it, hopefully this comes through, um, this image from the paper that was just published this week in Science reveals that while this bacterium is indeed uh, longer than a fruit fly, um, in fact, longer than a centimeter. Um, oh, it's like a pine needle. It's super long at then. Wow. Well, it's see, super, there yeah, you go. Biology works. You can see that it would have to be something like that. Yeah. So, uh, so Zag is still working on the, on the visual for that. When that comes up, it'll come up. It'll be clear what we were just talking about. But here from the lay summary, quote, we usually think of bacteria as microscopic isolated cells or colonies. Sampling a mangrove swamp, Voland et al. found an unusually large sulfur-oxidizing bacterium with a complex membrane organization and predicted life cycle. Using a range of microscopy techniques, the authors observed highly polyploid cells with DNA and ribosomes compartmentalized within membranes. Single cells of the bacterium, dubbed Candidatus theomargarita magnifica, Although thin and tubular, stretched more than a centimeter in length. Ah. So um, that that's all 
fine and interesting. And I, I love that you just did that live. You're like, how is it possibly going to work? You're going to need to have the oxygen get in. Um, so just to make it clear how this solves that problem, the center of this long hair-like bacterium is never far from the surface. So the diffusion problem is solved by the proximity of all of the uh, cytoplasm to the surface of the bacterium. And I am reminded, of course, as all of our listeners and viewers will will recognize immediately of plethodontids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, pleth- mm, of course, <laughs> of course, plethodontids are a um, a clade of salamanders. Actually, the largest clade of salamanders, uh, and they are lungless. All of them in in the clade, and being lungless, they need to get their oxygen into their bodies some other ways. They're also fully terrestrial as adults, so they haven't retained gills as some of the pedomorphic species of salamanders have. Um, but what they have is, like all amphibians, cutaneous respiration, which is to say they can breathe through their skin. Uh, and as such, what you would predict for all plethodontids, for all of this clade of lungless salamanders, is that they are, wait for it, long and thin, that they're going to have a, a high surface area to volume ratio, just like this new giant bacterium does, uh, and um, anytime you don't have some additional way to basically pump oxygen into the body or do gas exchange uh, via an active mechanism such as most vertebrates have with lungs, uh, you will you expect to have either a different solution, um, you know, gills and water where, where the oxygen is being pulled out of water, uh, or, uh, or a solution that has been happened upon a number of times, uh, increase the surface area to volume ratio. Um, by uh, making yourself long at them. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the really the reason my screen has died. Um, the reason this came up for me here in particular may be of you know we may be just deep down a rabbit hole here, uh, but one of the ways that this bacterium pulls it off is that it has. Uh, let's see, and I don't have the paper pulled up because I can't show it. But uh, if memory serves. Yes, there are, and this is just um, the last the last phrase in the actual abstract of the paper. Compartmentalization of genomic material and ribosomes in translationally active organelles bound by bioenergetic membranes indicate gain of complexity in the Theomargarita lineage and challenge traditional concept of bacterial cells. So to translate that, bacteria are what are called prokaryotes. They don't have their genetic material. Uh, encased within a nuclear membrane. They don't have a cell nucleus. And so what you have, boy, two to three, I I can't remember, one to two, two billion years ago, a long time ago, is the evolution of eukaryotes, uh, which is to say the origin of a cell nucleus and the encasing of the genomic material of of the DNA uh, within that nucleus. And so bacteria, it's all, it's, it's, they're, they're simple. They're understood to be simple and there's no compartmentalization. And so the organelles and the, and the DNA are all just kind of free floating. Well, not so this bacterium. So this is not a eukaryote. This is a different evolution of compartmentalization of genetic material, but within what is clearly a bacterium and not within a eukaryotic lineage. And, you know, this may, this may well held no interest at all for many people, but for me, this just re- this reminds me precisely of how our categories can be real and accurate, and we can say, okay, we know what prokaryotes are, and we know what eukaryotes are, and what those things are actually describing is lineages, and we've got eukaryotes with compartmentalization of DNA, and that starts to be what we think of when we think of eukaryotes. Well, are there bacteria are still around, 
It's like crocodiles. Like crocodiles evolved a long time ago and they haven't changed much. It must be working for them, right? There's a lot going on with a lot of yeah, bacteria. It's a, it's a good design that it can compete with more modern designs. Exactly. They're just they're sticking with what they've got, unlike you know humans who've been changing rapidly for a very long time. Well, bacteria is a giant clade. It's an ancient clade. It's more ancient than anything that's eukaryotic. Again, that has um, its DNA sequestered within a nucleus in in its cells, and yet. Even so, there are some bacteria that have solved the solution of how to segregate its, how to compartmentalize its its working parts uh, via a different but very similar method. Yeah. So another way to say that is that the the stories that we tell ourselves when we do a good job of synthesis, mm -hmm. the stories that we tell ourselves are true, and we can tell because when a lineage violates what we think to be a rule, it violates it in ways that are familiar because it's solving the same problem that its ancestor, which became a eukaryote, right. uh, also solved. Um, so that's that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So I, I hope we learn more about this. This is, uh, it, it's still brand new. Um, there's a lot not, lot a lot not known. And of course it raises the question of you know, why, why this bacterium in these mangroves um, is doing this compartmentalization of a bunch of important stuff when most bacteria aren't and why so many. Yeah, that is a fascinating question and why uh, some eukaryote that had this trick on board by virtue of being a eukaryote isn't in that niche. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Right. Okay. Obviously, it's time to, um, to talk about to Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. So um, let me set this up. A friend of ours, Dr. Rollergator, who had an extremely popular, ironic account in which he uh, often said very important things, but did so in a, uh, a highly stylized fashion that often involved him shouting in all caps. Uh, was, and, he, and he is a real person. Yes, he is. Well, sure, he's not a bot or a crocodile or crocodilian. Um, he was suspended four months ago for um, advocating violence on Twitter. And what he had, in fact, said, I, I'm not sure if Zach is in a position to show oh, uh, Dr. Rollergator's tweet. If not, I can just describe it. Well, you sent me something. Well, don't worry about it. I'll describe it. Um, what Dr. Rollergator said, I believe he was talking to Jordan Peterson and uh, Justin Trudeau, <laughs> um, who uh, Peterson had taken Trudeau to task, and Dr. Rollergator suggested that, I believe this is right, that they purchase white leather gloves with which to slap each other across the face, um, signaling the desire for... Uh, a duel. And this is odd because uh, Twitter suspended Dr. Rolligator and for four months has what presumably is just simply ignored appeals that this was not in fact inciting violence. And um, it's obviously, uh, you know, if you think about it, on the one hand, while it may technically be true that um, slapping somebody across the face with a white leather glove is violence by some legal definition. No. No. I uh, don't think so. Yeah. Well, but I'm the, not a legal scholar. It sounds like it could plausibly be assault, but violence? Seriously? Right. But here's the point. One, a slap is uh, 
obviously symbolic at one level, right? An open hand distributes the force over a large surface area. So while a slap may not feel good, the point is it is not inherently designed to do damage, but a slap with a glove is yet one more step removed from, from violence. It is symbolic. And then Dr. Rollergator's tweet is yet a third step removed in the sense that he was speaking ironically and was clearly not advocating that anybody actually slap anybody else. So the idea of being suspended for tweeting such a thing, which While was... While still believing, presumably, that some people might deserve it. Deserve it or not. The point is, do we really want Twitter um, policing the question of violence if it views this as uh, sufficiently violent that it is uh, justification to suspend an account uh, indefinitely? Well, this takes a whole new turn uh, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, in which many people, including quite a number of blue check marks, have advocated outright violence on Twitter and not suffered the same fate as Dr. Rollergator. I've seen tweets that advocate uh, burning down churches, the building of pipe bombs, all sorts of things, right? Now, that's actual violence being advocated by people on Twitter, and Twitter is doing nothing about it. So, there's an obvious conflict here. There's a question about uh, the application of the uh, the rule. So Twitter ostensibly has a rule against advocating violence. But what could possibly explain um, Dr. Rollegator's account being suspended for advocating that someone buy leather gloves with which to slap someone else across the face when people who are advocating the burning down of churches or the building of pipe bombs uh, are allowed to continue on with this behavior. So I want to give you a chance to jump in if you had anything. No, I mean, this is, I mean, I think is when we were talking about this earlier, as you said, this is one for me and two for you territory. It's, right. It's, it's uh, and, and as I've said a number of times, it's Twitter sanctioned violence. Right. And so this is really the key point is that on the one hand, so what we have is selective enforcement. Right. We have a circumstance yeah. in which certain people, because uh, Twitter views them as politically hostile, are, have, have a, such a low bar set that you can't even make an ironic tweet about a, a white leather glove and not be suspended. But for other people, apparently, there's no level of violence that you could advocate that uh, would get you in similar trouble. And the point I wanted to make is um, this is not Twitter being against violence. Right. This is actually characteristic of something else entirely. When somebody wants their opponent restrained so that they cannot engage in violence, but they want full liberty to engage in violence, that's not an anti-violence position. That's actually a pro-violence position and a violent asymmetry that is being advocated. And so I think increasingly we need to look at what Twitter is doing in this light. And, you know, Twitter is, of course, not alone. We've seen this on all of the social media platforms. The idea that there is some um, set of rules in the terms of service that is understood to apply to everybody, but the differential application of those rules is actually um, nakedly political, or it's political, but for a thin veneer 
you know, a pretense of fair application. And at what point do we watch these things being unfairly applied? At what point do we just simply get to say, I'm sorry, a terms of service that applies to some users and not others is not the terms of service, right? It's a weapon of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just simply where we are with Twitter. We are watching them wield weapons against people who hold perspectives different than their own. And who needs a social media platform that is willing to let you say whatever you want so long as you agree with them? Not I, but, yeah. it's, but it's what we've got. But it's what we've got. Mm-hmm. It's what we've got. And uh, anyway, it's, um, it is it is ironically exactly the thing that leads to violence, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you want a less violent world, a world, you know, I think actually um, Sam Harris has made this point, right? We have two choices. We can either learn how to talk or we can resort to violence because we're left with nothing else. So we better figure out how to talk. And if the places on which we would talk or the paper on which we would write to each other are going to take a position that certain things can't be discussed, well, you know, they are setting the stage for a violent future that uh, all of us will regret. That is absolutely true. Um, You suggested at the top of the hour that all of our three main topics linked together in the transition between them, it's not Obvious. obviously apparent to me. So we talked about Roe and various issues around around abortion rights. We now talked about Twitter-sanctioned violence. And next up, we have the CDC admitting something about what they've actually been doing, or rather failing to do, which they said they had been doing all along, um, with regard to tracking adverse events associated with uh, COVID vaccines. Yeah. So what we have here is a rather shocking revelation, the result of a Freedom of Information Act request filed by Children's Health Defense with the CDC. And what they asked, unfortunately, we can't show it to you because of our uh, technical issues here. But show the top page. You want to show the top page? Go for of, it. Of the PDF. I don't know what you've got there. You've got the CDC PDF? from January or February of 2021? Yeah. Ah, so, okay. What we have here, I believe, if I'm seeing it correctly, is a document from the CDC in which they discuss in early 2021 how they are going to analyze evidence of adverse events in order to discover whether or not the new COVID-19 vaccines are creating uh, health problems that are worthy of some sort of regulatory change. And what they describe is a regime, I believe it is section 2.3 of this document, they um, outline a mechanism, uh, I would argue, and our good friend Matthew Crawford has also argued that it is a very flawed mechanism for analyzing the data in the VAERS system. But what they advocate is a system, uh, the acronym is uh, PRR, and effectively it involves looking at the ratio of different adverse events between vaccines. So you take a new vaccine like the COVID vaccine, uh, the COVID mRNA vaccine, and you compare it to a longstanding vaccine, and you see whether the ratio of adverse events that are reported differs from the prior vaccine. And if it does differ, that might suggest if there's an elevated level of one particular kind of adverse event, it might suggest uh, that uh, something is amiss. 
Let me just quote from that document that Zach just had up, the relevant portion, which you've just done a very good job of summarizing, but let's just have it in the CDC's words. This is from uh, the briefing document posted on the CDC website in January 2021, updated in February 2022 with minor changes. Section 2.3.1, Proportional Reporting Ratio, PRR. CDC will perform PRR data mining on a weekly basis or as needed. PRRs compare the proportion of a specific AE, that is, adverse event, following a specific vaccine versus the proportion of the same AE following receipt of another vaccine. A safety signal is defined as a PRR of at least two chi-squared statistic of at least four and three or more cases of the AE following receipt of the specific vaccine of interest. I sped up because none of the, none of the particulars matters here. <clears throat> it's the first sentence. CDC will perform PRR data mining on a weekly basis or as needed. And then the next, the final little paragraph here, CDC will apply appropriate comparative vaccines, e.g. adjuvanted vaccines like Shringrix and or Fluad for adjuvanted COVID-19 vaccines and adjust for severity and age distributions where applicable. And the, the, the first punchline here, which I have in front of me, I don't know, maybe you want to do it or I can just go for it. arrive at it. Um, is that um, I'm reading right now from a piece written by Josh Gutzkow, PhD, on uh, the Defender blog on children's health defense, who uh, says, you know, I was concerned about what we're going to find with adverse events, but at least the CDC said repeatedly we're going to be doing this PRR, um, these, you know, by which we could tell. And, you know, there are problems itself with PRR as a, as a mechanism. To yeah, for example, that. if you have two vaccines that have a high rate of adverse events, but the same ratio of harms, it will be not detectable by this method, right? So if, if a particular adjuvant, for example, created a given ratio of harms, um, and the ratio was therefore the same between two different vaccines that used that same adjuvant, you wouldn't see it by this mechanism. So the mechanism uh, leaves many routes by which it would fail to detect adverse events that matter. But it turns out that's not even the problem here. Right. The problem here is worse than that. <laughs> we got All a dog right, on the move. Sorry, uh, guys. Um, a dog trapped by equipment. Yeah, so there are more obvious and better ways to assess whether or not you've got an adverse event associated with a vaccine. The advantage of PRR, apparently, is that it's simple. Uh, there's, uh, there's a rubric already in process. It takes basically a push of a button. Uh, it, really, it really takes almost nothing to do it. And um, what I just read from the document that was first put up uh, by the CDC in January 21 and updated with minor changes in February 22 said, quote, CDC will perform PRR data mining. CDC will perform PRR data mining on a weekly basis or as needed. And yet, when uh, the Children's Health Defense put in a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, to see the results of the PRR, again, the, um, the analysis the CDC has said it would be doing on the mRNA COVID vaccines, the agency wrote, quote, no PRRs were conducted by CDC. Furthermore, data mining is outside of the agency's purview. The agency then suggests contacting the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, which was supposed to perform a different type of data mining. So this is jaw-dropping. I mean, it can't really be a shock to any of us who've been paying attention to the absolutely unprecedented adverse event signal in the VAERS system and have been saying, all right, we keep we are told that the system which was set up to detect adverse events 
um, is not reliable. But then if that's true, if they're not paying attention to this system, are they paying attention to no system? Because it would certainly seem that you would need to have something monitoring adverse events in order to know whether these highly novel vaccines were doing some new major kind of damage. What we have in this case is we've got the CDC telling us exactly what analysis they were going to perform. When we in the public perform that analysis, we get a very alarming answer for these vaccines. And then when a Freedom of Information Act request is directed at the CDC, who has told us that they intended to perform these analyses, the result is they tell us, well, they didn't do it, which means that apparently the CDC was not addressing the question of the unprecedented adverse event signal from these vaccines and was simply proceeding as if it didn't exist. This is Well, going into public with the talking heads, the people who may have the right credentials but don't seem to know anything about how to do science or what what it would mean to do so, making claims like, on April 27th, 2021, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky stating that the CDC does not see any signals relating to heart inflammation. Well, on what basis can that claim be made if they're doing no analysis at all? Right. I mean, you know... Did she look in the couch cushions for... Yeah, I see no heart inflammation. Right. There's no evidence of heart inflammation in these couch cushions, right? So the point is, okay, you've got people who are charged with protecting us from adverse events. You've got a system that was set up, which frankly is set up in such a way that it is very difficult even for damaging vaccines to, to trigger enough uh, of a signal to, to get anyone's attention. And in this case, you have an outscaled signal which does show up in this system, does not appear to be anomalous to the extent it's been looked at. Um, who filed these reports? It's uh, overwhelmingly medical professionals and people uh, involved in pharmaceutical production themselves who have filed these reports. It is a match for what we see in the British yellow card system. There's all kinds of evidence that suggests that there's a very serious adverse event uh, problem. And those who are charged with balancing the risks of a vaccine with the benefits of that vaccine are apparently blinding themselves to the very signal that they would need to analyze in order to decide whether or not the cost was uh, worth enduring in order to get the benefit. And, you know, well, go ahead. Well, just an, an image just came to my mind. You know, we, we hear terms that are used somewhat metaphorically like rudderless. The system seems rudderless. Perhaps it's leaderless, where there's just a figurehead there. Uh, and I think, I think rudderless is wrong. I feel like uh, to the extent that a boat with a rudder metaphor is apt here, uh, there is a rudder, and there's someone in charge, and they've been told, just crank it all the way one way, no matter what. The rudder's intact, and we are just going to steer the ship that way, that way, that way, always the same way. And uh, it's not that it's not random. Right? The, the, the bad information and bad public health policy and just bad all the way down almost with regard to responses to COVID at the public policy and public health level have been not chaotic. They have been not random. They have been not arbitrary. They always err in the same directions. And that is what suggests that... Uh, we are not rudderless and we are not leaderless, but we are definitely being driven. We are being driven and we are being driven in a way that puts us in peril. In other words, when they said safe and effective, 
those were effectively going to be the conclusions irrespective of what the evidence suggested. Right yeah. here we now find out what safe means, which is it means that they wrote that into the brochure. That was at best their hope of what would be true. And then they steadfastly uh, avoided the evidence that would tell them if they had been incorrect about it. Right? Safe. Safe as far as we could tell before we had any data, and then we stopped checking. Yeah, it's 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 unconscionable. If, if even like that, even maybe a generous interpretation from what we are now seeing about early results out of the Pfizer trials. Right. Yeah. The other thing, and the reason that this connects to the prior two topics, is that we are in a polarized environment where those of us who have attempted to divine what is actually true about the costs and benefits of these vaccines, about the hazards of this disease, about the way in which you might risk stratify people and protect many people who don't need the vaccines because they're protected by virtue of being uh, young and healthy, mm -hmm. right? We have been demonized. Yeah. We have been demonized on the basis that we misunderstood the evidence when in fact what we are now finding out is that there was an effort not to see the evidence. That, you know, of yeah. course it should shock no one that demonizing us was part of preventing that evidence from being scrutinized by anyone. And, and the question is, what do we now do about it? If this is what the CDC does, then what even is it? What even is it? What, you know, what, what even is it uh, from which agencies and on what basis were legions, really almost all of the doctors, being given their marching orders, which then even, even normally free-thinking, often heterodox, very qualified to think scientifically, scientists and researchers themselves said, wow, this is a complex landscape, I'm going to listen to my doctor. Well, if the doctors themselves have been given information that was incomplete, that was dogmatic, that would not change in the face of evidence, then those scientists who are trusting their doctors are not acting scientifically. They're acting as if the authorities would not lie to them and could not be wrong. And so that, that is where we find ourselves now, that, those, that those, those few of us who are many more than, than, than mainstream media would have you believe, um, but those few of us who stuck our necks out and said publicly over and over and over again, actually, this doesn't add up. These policies don't seem to be a match for what we can see. And science doesn't work that way. And there's no way that consensus could have been arrived at so quickly and have it be a legitimate scientific consensus. Those of us who did that and were, you know, and were thrown under the bus and demonetized and told that we were killing people and all of this, as more and more evidence suggests that actually the analysis either hasn't been being done or when it is being done, it suggests exactly the things that those of us who have been warning about it were correct. What now? Like, fast forward in five years, the next one of these happens. Where are the people who are actually doing the science and can understand the science well enough to communicate it to people who are going to be making public policies? Because if it's the same people, with the same systems in place, we are in exactly as much trouble as we were before, and even more, actually, because now it's really clear what proportion of the population is willing to say, okay, whatever you say, I'll accept, I'll accept your thing. I trust you. Well, there's that for the next pandemic. There's also the question, I mean, what I don't yet hear is a mutiny 
right? The doctors who were effectively dragged into gaslighting people who were injured on the pretense that adverse events were actually very rare and therefore most of the people who walked through the doors of their doctor's office and said, I'm suffering uh, from this vaccine, were effectively turned away, told that it was a coincidence, told that it was in their heads, right? Where are the doctors who should be rising up and uh, demanding that the CDC be replaced by an actual CDC, Mm -hmm. right? That, That absence, I mean, you know, who knows? This is a new... A new result, but I, I am not really expecting to see the doctors stand up because the doctors have been dragged into something unholy. Yep. And you know, the question is which which thing will now drive them? Will they be driven by the Hippocratic oath and the fact that they have been forced uh, or induced to violate it by a CDC that was only pretending to be interested in uh, adverse events? Will they be driven by their conscience now or will they be driven by covering their asses and not admitting to all of the patients that they turned away and shouldn't have um, that in fact they screwed up and there are adverse events. There are lots of them and these people need to be treated. We need to have, you know, effectively uh, a rapid bootstrapping of the medicine of treating the adverse events that come from these highly novel vaccines. So I guess time will tell. Um, but I, I'm concerned that uh, everybody has gotten so used to parroting the official narrative that uh, this is, even though it is obviously jaw-dropping that the CDC apparently violated its own plan for monitoring adverse events and didn't monitor them at all, um, I'm concerned that that will be treated as just another uh, minor anomaly here when, in fact, it is an indication of exactly what's gone wrong. Indeed. I think that may wrap it up. All right. I think I think that we are there. Which means that uh, we are going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with a live Q&A, where you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. You can, are encouraged to join our Patreons if you are so inspired, where tomorrow there will be a live private Q&A from 11 a.m. Pacific until 1. And... In the meantime, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>